0: it's always going to be scary. Like this is never going to not be scary. If you want to like actually pursue these bigger cliffs, you just have to like face it and think through the fear. So I just like use that fear to like think clearly about what I was doing and find that composure.
1: Hey everybody. Welcome back to run from home. We're going to be talking to Julian Carr today, athlete extraordinaire, entrepreneur, He's going to be talking to us about the art of impossible, but first we just want to do a quick shout out for our friends over at spot insurance. Really cool product. I'm going to let Julian tell you a little bit about it.
0: So spot is around 25 bucks a month for $20,000 in coverage. If you get injured and have to seek medical treatment spot pays up to 20,000 towards your medical bills starting at 25 bucks a month. So, you know, spot works with dozens of ambassadors that compete uh, at the top of their sports from Anthony Walsh in uh, surfing, Samantha Cummings, Matt Seagal in climbing, um, Justin Corey Williams in cycling, Audrey and Bollinger in mountaineering, and it basically works whether you have health insurance or not. Um, If you have it, they'll pay your deductible. Um, And they'll cover thousands of activities from, you know, walking your dog to diving with sharks, climbing a ladder, climbing Everest. So it's basically really cool accident insurance that's super affordable um, and very happy to be affiliated with spot insurance.
1: Awesome. Yeah, it seems like it's just a, it's a no brainer for any of the listeners out there that participate in all the stuff that we love to do in the Rome community, uh, for $25 a month to have that peace of mind is, is well worth it. So check them out at spot insurance friends over there, lifebyspot.com. And also, if you're a Rome member, uh, we are going to have spot included in that Rome membership in one way or another, or a big discount. So check us out at RomeMedia.com or just go to LifeBySpot.com. Either place, you can uh, go a little bit deeper on spot insurance and check it out. Thanks. Welcome, Julian, to the Thank Rome you. from Home podcast.
0: Yes, yeah. it is awesome to see you. Where yeah, are likewise. you? I'm in Golden, Colorado. Wait, dude. you're in Golden. Golden.
2: Wait, you know, I like... didn't, That's weird. I didn't know that. I didn't know that you were there.
0: Yeah, I'm here for the short term. It's home base right now, which is great because I've been a Salt Lake native my whole life. So it's kind of fun to get to know uh, a whole new zone.
2: Well, you're like a stone throw away, dude. We should go run around the the Flatirons at a social distance.
0: Oh, definitely. I went and hiked uh, Bear Peak a couple days ago. I love that oh yeah is so sick
2: yeah yeah dude i was on it yesterday anytime oh, you do cool. that i like that's where i train like Sweet. the whole
1: that whole skyline so i'm yeah. staring at it like i'm in south boulder it's
0: right there <laughs> game on yeah <laughs> good to know
1: nice well it is exciting to have you on today my friend it's been a while i'm looking forward to catching up here um julian carr uh Corey and I have been going back and forth on this, but I'm going to let you introduce yourself today. <laughs> yeah. Who are you, dude? Yeah, who, <laughs> who, are are you? <laughs> who are you?
0: Um, well, I'm Julian Carr. I'm a professional skier and I guess you could say entrepreneur. I founded uh, Discreet Clothing, um, which is kind of a small outdoor, mostly beanie and neck gator brand. Uh, we make flannels too. Like this is one of our flannels. Um, and lots of private label um, kind of custom gear for brew houses, coffee houses, stuff like that. Um, and Cirque series, mountain races. So I'm the race director of our fifth year now of Cirque series, um, which is a fun kind of, I call them the mini, mini ultras. Yeah. Um, so they're pretty approachable mountain races on average. They're only seven miles, but have 3000 vert So it's all about hitting a really cool peak and coming back down and, Um, so yeah, year round, obviously three really fun, engaging things are going on and they keep me in the mountains. All three of them.
2: Awesome. Um, dude, let's, I just want to quickly like give some background. You've known CJ for a long time, but, but it was illuminated that you and I have probably known each other for as long as, I mean, how old are you now?
0: I'm 41.
2: Yeah. So I've known you for like 35 years, something pretty
0: much. (laughs) Pretty much. I mean, I, obviously when I'm in Salt Lake and I'm cruising around the avenues, I'll be like, Hey, that's Corey and Dave's house right there. Yeah. So it's a trip that I've known you since basically I was like probably in second or third grade and you were like in kindergarten or first grade, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, we, we literally went to school together as like tiny people. I think that's a, it's funny too, because I was telling CJ, like, we, you know, we grew up together, and then, you know, I think Dave and I were part of sort of that. My brother David, we were sort of part of that arrogant Alta ski kids, you know, employee kids group. And then all of a sudden, it was like Julian Carr. You somehow surfaced as like this preeminent badass in the industry. I had no idea how it happened, and I still don't. So I'm <laughs> kind of curious, like. You know, we, we grew up, we go to high school, and then all of a sudden, you're,
0: you're the shit. Like, what happened?
1: The origin story. Tell us the origin story.
0: Well, I'll try not to ramble on too long, but. Ramble, bro. You know, I, I skied, uh, I started skiing in eighth grade. So, I mean, I was, I was really late to the party with the ski stuff. Yeah. And luckily, I started skiing right out of the gate with Rich Peterson. Okay. And if people don't know Rich Peterson, he's a lead guide at CPG now on a snowboard, but he was raised as a skier and one of the most phenomenal athletes to this day that I know. So I was lucky that right out of the gate, I was skiing with Rich because he's one of my best friends and I met him in seventh grade. And so I didn't realize just how talented he was. Mm -hmm. So for those first two years when I really fell in love with skiing, I was skiing with Rich Peterson every weekend. We were going up every free chance that we got. And then in high school, uh obviously really fell in love with skiing and went as much as I could. And then in college, uh, which is funny to bring it back to the to the old school names from our high school, um, I like new Clark finds from yeah. just being a homie in high school and obviously Adam Clark. And I was like, hey guys, it looks like you guys are dipping your toe in the in the ski industry. Um, what's the word, you know? And Clark was like, dude, you got to get these Rozzy triple X bandit skis. He's like, they're going to make you ski better. (laughs) And he's like, and then Adam's like, I'll go snap some pictures with you. Why not? You know? And, and Clark's like, yeah, go just find like really good photographers to shoot with. And, you know, that's like your distribution. So like Clark's always been obviously really dialed with, thinking from every perspective of how to make a career out of something. Mm-hmm. And obviously getting that consultation right out of the gate really helped me understand that, you know, half of being a professional athlete is the activity. And then the other half is how you're making a, you know, monetary uh, arrangement out of it, you know? And so right. me understanding that right out of the gate really helped me and my longevity of my career. But, Basically, I went out and started shooting some photos, built a website back in the day, and just started hustling. You know, and I had you know some sponsors, and it was all kind of product based through college. Yeah. And then you know every TGR movie that's coming out, I'm seeing Jamie Pierre hit just massive hundred foot cliffs routinely, mm-hmm. and no one else was doing that um, except for you know the one off Rob Holmes right um, or uh you know Jeff Holden at the time had a couple big airs under his feet but Pierre he was the one guy that just was routinely going massive mm-hmm. and i was like man i i was just drawn to it cuz ever since i was a little kid i've loved being in the air i love being on a trampoline i love gymnastics i love playing in the foam pit as soon as i started skiing i i realized that the mountains are just a massive foam pit and that's <laughs> always been my perspective and so yeah after- that be
2: the poll quote for this <laughs> yeah. podcast the, the mountains are one big foam pit
0: <laughs> but you know it is in utah it's the truth like yeah if you're around that much deep pow it is like the a real a realistic comparison it's like a real analogy it, it yeah. is just like a foam pit if yeah. you're obviously ski enough and find the right landings and know how to assess all that, which takes a long time to, to get that kind of, you know, knowledge under your belt. But, um, from going from, you know, learn how to ski in seventh, eighth grade to first couple of years in college, 1920, kind of breaking onto the scene. It really, um, I mean, I was watching like every MSP TGR movie. I was like reading every powder freeze, free skier, and I was just way into it. And I was obviously drawn to big airs. And I just was kind of hitting a ceiling at around 40, 50 foot cliffs. Because going any bigger is terrifying, right? Yeah. And I just couldn't figure it out. I was just too scary. And I would like hike up into Wolverine Cirque and go sit on the edge of uh, that one cliff that Pierre figured out that was in TGR high life. It's like 110, 100 to 50 foot cliff, depending on the snow year. Mm -hmm. I, I sat on that one summer and just like wanted to be in that kind of a Alpine environment just to be like, man, this is so scary to be on top of this big of a cliff. But the more time I can spend on being on top of a big cliff, I think the more like clarity or comfort or any kind of like epiphanies will come to me. And sure enough, I realized that, the difference of going like 50 feet to a hundred plus mm-hmm. literally was 0.2 seconds to maybe one second of composure. <laughs> That's all it took of additional composure of doing a fifty foot cliff. Mm-hmm. And once I finally kind of had that aha moment, the next year uh I was with Adam Clark and we were out shooting around in um the uh Hellgate uh kind of Cardiff area around mm-hmm. the corner and sure enough we're skiing some pow it's beautiful super deep and I turn around this corner and I'm on top of like 70 80 90 foot cliff and the landing just looks super perfect of all the people that could have been around too Rob Holmes is with us and so he's <laughs> down on the landing i'm telling him where to probe yeah and he like obviously has trust his judgment with cliffs and and landings and Adam was down there too. I watched him probe in this area that looked perfect to land in and I've been skiing in that pow all morning and for the previous, you know, two or three weeks. And, uh, I like backed up and uh, my heart rate was going crazy. And I was like, this is just too scary. Like I'm just going to do this next time, next time. And right then I was like, it's always going to be scary. Like this is never going to not be scary. If you want to like, actually, pursue these bigger cliffs you just have to like face it and think through the fear so i just like use that fear to like think clearly about what i was doing and find that composure and i did i hit the air and actually it was really funny right before i hit it of all people too i was like finalizing my takeoff and almost like a minute out from hitting it and jamie pierre pulls up (laughs) obviously it's like at this time maybe eight in the morning we had been out since sunrise and no one's around right and of all people rob holmes down there and then jamie pierre pulls up and he's like hey man i'm jamie i'm like hey what's up i'm julian <laughs> first time i'd ever met him <laughs> wow. and uh i was like he's like looks he's like this is pretty cool man he's like you mind if i hit it after you and i was like definitely <laughs> totally cool and so i backed up he got out of the way He was like super respectful of like what i was gonna do and um Calm down. And man, as soon as I obviously being in the air, as soon as I got in the air and seeing the ground that far away and just remaining calm was like a really poignant moment, but I was able to. And when I landed in pure relaxation, uh, maintain that composure, it felt like any 20 foot cliff I'd ever hit. So at that (laughs) moment, I was like, Oh, it is on. Because You can go as big as you want. And, uh, that year, I ended up being lucky enough, obviously, that the conditions were following me around, but I was able to hit that cliff in Wolverine Cirque that the first time I hit, it was 170 feet. It was like a month after that cliff with I'm uh, telling you about. Yeah. I hit that four times that year, a front flip, a back flip, a straight air, and a spread eagle, and I went to Switzerland and hit a 210-foot cliff. All in that one year, the conditions just were perfect. My mindset was right that epiphany held true and it's just become like this protocol of how to think through fear essentially and like how to use that fear because it's always super scary but you just have to like realize it's scary but think through it you know so essentially me cracking the code on the big cliffs is how i really kind of sprang onto the scene so that's a short answer gone real long
2: i mean it's, oh, it's perfect good. though i mean yeah, it's because yeah. it's funny like truly you know you sort of or our lives you know they they just weren't intertwined for that time period necessarily in high school and then all of a sudden it was it was the cover i forget which magazine it was but i just was like looking at this cover i was like what the fuck that has to be (laughs) not right that can't be right
1: yeah it does look a little strange
2: yeah and then i looked and then I looked at the, you know, I think it might have been an Adam Clark shot, and I looked at the caption, and it was you, and I was like, what? <laughs> How did? The, <laughs> when did that happen? And it was, it was such a cool, um, like a, a sort of a reintroduction to somebody from from your past. You're just like, I, holy shit! I mean, I'm I'm in awe, and I'm still in awe. I mean, you, you're talking about some big concepts, and and right now, I think a lot of them are applicable dissecting fear is one of them Mm. like how do you dissect fear
0: well i think
2: like in this moment that's important
0: yeah well i think one kind of parameter that i've tried to assess is are your skills adequate enough for what you're scared of and if so you should be able to think through something even if it's scary Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of times that you have to really be, you know, honest with yourself is when your vision is bigger than your skills. Mm-hmm. And if you see something you want to do and it's super scary and you just can't shake it, it might be because that vision exceeds your skill set. Mm-hmm. And that happens a lot, I think, because when you go skiing with tons of people that have all kinds of backgrounds. And I ski all the time, obviously, with people that grew up being mogul skiers, racers, and they're just phenomenal skiers. And I'm always trying to build up my skiing ability because I just thrashed. I followed around Rich Peterson in seventh, eighth grade, never had a lesson in my life. And so I'm always trying to be a better skier. And so I'm always confronted with situations that I'm like, I could see exactly how to do that. It's super scary. But, man, I think that is – surpasses my skill level, you know, so I shouldn't do that. (laughs) But I think we all run into that no matter what sport we're participating in. So I think that's like uh, something I always try to really think about. Um, Mm. I like that,
1: that, uh, that being honest with yourself, we've talked about that before, Corey, with other guests too, where, yeah, I think it was Kelly Sturette that was like, you're lying to yourself. Like we're all lying to ourselves about something, but being able to assess, you know, especially in your position, Julian, and yours too, Corey, often, like, do, our, do my skills match my vision? I think that's an amazing takeaway and goes pretty deep on, you know, how, how, do, you, um, how do you gut check yourself on that in terms of being honest with yourself? And that, that can go beyond jumping off cliffs, obviously, but I think that's a really interesting topic.
2: Where do you draw the line of um, allowing your skill set to not meet the objective, but still trying it? Because ultimately, that's progression, right? That's evolution.
0: Sure, sure. I think with maybe if it's like uh, pushing something against that boundary that, you know, doesn't have a mortal consequence, (laughs) right? (laughs) So (laughs) I think the wrong time to test that boundary is when the consequences are just way too high. Right. And I think there are ways to baby step through that even with really high consequence situations. Um, Cause you're right. Like how do you progress if that's your barrier? But right. I think, you know, for me at least I have a 100% no or no go or don't go kind of rule with, mm-hmm. with big cliffs and and that's just it. If I, if I am scared, I'm gripped, and I know I can do it, then I'll just use that fear to literally like fuel my, my critical concentration. Like mm-hmm. I'll use that fear to really think about, you know, going down and assessing the landing until I know 100% that that landing is good. And then that momentum of confidence starts to pick up and the fear starts to recede Mm -hmm. and then I'll look at like the sheerness of the cliff. And once that is a hundred percent, you know, again, that confidence builds and that fear recedes more. And then I'll look at the takeoff and if that's a hundred percent good to go, then that confidence is so building. And then the last, like I, I kind of those like my, my four uh, categories of protocol or landing, sheerness, take off and how am i feeling that's like the last part of it and if all four of those are not a hundred percent then i just don't do it period you know and yeah it's crazy when you do come to the point of okay the landing the sheerness the takeoff, all a hundred percent now how do i feel right now you know and like am i breathing am i calm am i absolute 100% confident or is there any hair on my body that doesn't feel right and then if there is something that doesn't feel right then you just sit with it longer and think through it until you're able to source what's making you nervous and iron it out or you don't do it and that's kind of for me um, my protocol and I've you know spent hours on top of cliffs that everything was good and then ultimately didn't do it and uh, that's always hard to do but something was off. And if you're off, then it doesn't matter how good something is, you shouldn't do it.
2: Yeah. Is is there like, I mean, right now we're just all, I think, you know, in the middle of this pandemic, we're all thinking, um, and I don't want to harp too much on this topic, but is there, are there takeaways from that process that you can apply to, to your life right now or other people's lives? I mean, that same sort of dissection, that same sort of, um, you know, you got your takeoff, your landing, the sheerness sort of the angle and then how you're feeling how does that translate into life right now when we're all fucking, excuse my language, scared to go to the grocery store? Yeah,
0: I think I just love, uh, you know, life being healthy. And I think with this pandemic, it's just something to be more grateful of, of having baseline health. I'm healthy. My immediate family and close friends are, are all healthy Mm -hmm. And I think that just bring it back to being grateful about those baseline gifts, you know, that a lot of people don't have right now. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of obviously people that are sick. There's a lot of people dying and obviously the economy is really suffering. And a lot of people are having a hard time. So I just really trying to be grateful and that's kind of what I'm reeling it back to. And I think Mm -hmm. uh, that can be a good practice for, for everyone at this time is like, Man, there's a lot of people suffering, health-wise and financially, right now. And if you aren't, then you know there's there's a lot of things just to kind of be. Well, what's the baseline that's really important in life? You know.
2: What is like? I mean, you're a small business owner. What's going on with with your business?
0: You know, definitely a lot of it fell off a cliff. We also we are selling a lot of <laughs> neck gators, which was totally unexpected.
2: It fell off a cliff. Is that a pun?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I couldn't help it. (laughs) But um, we're still at a lot of net gaiters, which is cool. Uh, And the races, you know, our first race is scheduled for June 24th, Mm -hmm. which is obviously six weeks ago, you know, March, mid-March when everything started kind of coming out and a lot of, marathons and and trail races were getting canceled. I was like, oh, sweet. I mean, my race is four months out. I think I'm insulated that we're going to be just fine. And then after a month, you know, I was like, wow, like our registrations obviously completely Mm standstill. And I'm like, holy cow, this is not like going to be something that passes and our races are okay. And, I'd had this script that I'd been building in my head and like these expectations, this narrative of, you know, our races have so much momentum. Um, we sold out like five out of the six of them last year, and we were on pace to sell all six out this year and just really cement the series as like one of the funnest mountain running series in the nation. And I realized that I was having a lot of an anxiety, and it was because I'd held on to this narrative. I'd been holding on to these expectations and this dialogue of this is what's going to be the summer. And now obviously it's not. So it was really hard for me to let go of that and just have that kind of brutal reality, like self check-in like you would with like a cliff of being like, well, the, my vision does (laughs) exceed reality right now with Mm -hmm. the races. And so I all of a sudden realized like, man, I need to build some real contingency plans right now. Mm -hmm. And do I need to, I need to look critically at really building postponement uh, races for the first few races. I need to realize that dependent on what the CDC and the federal guidelines are after this, because in March 15th for the CDC said, you know, limit gatherings over 50 people for eight weeks. Right. So we haven't heard the new guidance on that. Right. And so we're kind of at the mercy of that. But in the meantime, I have, I've built some serious contingency plans and applied for the cares act, small business stimulus, because I'm like, dude, if we, if, if the CDC says no events over like a hundred people until the year 2021, mm-hmm. we won't have a single race. And it's right. just uh, the reality. So I've uh, made that conscious exercise of, Really, just letting go of those expectations I had and realizing that it's a different reality now, and building tiered contingency plans of, okay, here's a postponement schedule that I've worked out with venues, medics, timers, volunteers, employees. Um, you know, it's a lot of work to set up races, and there's so many moving pieces that even building postponement plans is a lot of work, and so. I just rolled up my sleeves and realized that was my new reality. And so it's, uh, it's challenging for sure. And it's going to, you know, I'm hopeful that we'll still be able to have a, a schedule of races this this summer.
2: What, what, what was the impetus for creating the race series? I mean, it's, it's funny to me in my mind, it makes sense, but what, what drove you in that direction?
0: You know, I think when you go out touring Uh, to get most of our ski photos, we're up obviously pretty early, oftentimes before sunrise. And it's a slow pace to hike up into high Alpine. And usually Mm -hmm. we're getting up towards the peaks. And it's obviously, as you know, so exhilarating to be in the high Alpine. Mm -hmm. And I usually in the off season would go to Chile or I'd be mountain biking a lot and uh six or seven years ago i got this amazing dog and i'd go mountain biking with her and she would keep up no problem and she'd love it but i was like man if i keep mountain biking 15 20 miles with her all out sprinting by the time she turns five or six she's gonna be like not (laughs) doing great so i lived right by the trailhead to mount olympus in salt lake and you know if you've hiked that, obviously you know it's a monster of a straight up hike It's only I think it's just over like two and a half miles with four thousand vertical feet yeah so I mean it's straight up and so I started hiking that a lot, usually at sunrise or sunset, and I had that same feeling of a cool alpine experience that I'd had skiing and coming back down, having to be really quick footed and the agility was all there, you know, the, the story of the mountain was there, and it was, you know, it was hard, it was hard work, and uh, I just fell in love with, you know, I'm not much of a quote-unquote runner, you know, but yeah. I loved that feeling of trying to go up Mount Olympus as fast as I possibly could, and I got in the best shape of my life, and I was, like, so into it that I was like, I wonder what races are out there for this stuff. I could have, like, a fun off-season thing, you know, and uh, at the time I was hiking Olympus like four to like five, six, sometimes every day of the week. I was just addicted, fully addicted. I like had a, a clock like timing to make sure I could get to certain points in a certain time. And I was always trying to prove myself. Mm-hmm. And at the time I was biking everywhere too. So I was just like a, a freak at, at that for like a very brief half a year moment. I was like <laughs> really in shape and really loving, loving it. And I was shocked. I looked into the trail run scene. I saw tons of ultras, which were cool. The hard rocks, the Leadvilles, the great Westerns and all these amazing, super gnarly a hundred mile races through the high Alpine. And I was like, wow, that's gnarly. Like respect, you know, but well, that's not my cup of tea. And then there's tons of five K's and, and marathons and road races and agility runs and obstacle courses and mud runs and, relay races and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool too. But where is hiking up Mount Olympus and back down? Where's yeah. like a five mile race with 4,000 vert. And right. I was shocked. Nothing zero. Like I found like the steeplechase run that goes up little black mountain in Salt yeah. Lake. Yeah. So that's still 15 miles. Yeah. That's pretty long. You know, yeah. that's not yeah. approachable for a beginner. And I was like, that's still just, why, why doesn't, why doesn't this exist? And so that was my inspiration. It was kind of like in the back of my mind. I was like, Oh, I should start like a Wasatch classics and do like a race up Olympus or race up grandeur, uh, a race up like Jack's peak or something. And Mm -hmm. that was kind of just like a thought in my mind that circled around for a year. And then the next year I was in Iceland on a big ski trip, uh, doing a a TV show for outside uh, television. And on our last day, we hiked up this beautiful to ski the chute. I got up there like five minutes before the rest of the group and I perched myself on this rock, like overlooking the Arctic ocean and the sun's going down and I felt so good from this 2000 foot hike. I just did ski to shoot. And it was like late March and I was like, I'm going to go home and start that race series this summer. So that was March. This was 2015. That August 6th, we had our first race at uh, Alta. And then we had a race at Snowbird, Deer Valley, and Crested Butte um, between that first race of August and October. And so that was our first year, 2015. And we averaged 100 people a race that year, which Mm -hmm. was uh, not that psyched on. But everyone else that put on races were like, dude, you should be happy for your first year. 100 people at each race is pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. So just built off that. But that was it. I wanted to have an approachable race that put people in the high alpine that wouldn't necessarily – they wouldn't know how to pursue it. And so that's what the essence of the races is, is somebody in a peak. We all start at the same time. 80% of the people to sign up for the races are like the beginner category, which is great. And then we'll still get like, you know, 15 to 30 real deal pros come out. And for them, it's a walk in the park, but we have great prize money. And then there's lots of guys like me that are in the expert category Mm -hmm. far from being professional I had my dreams of thinking I was fast, squashed quickly. Yeah. Obviously, mountain endurance athletes are absolute freakazoids. So um, that's our categories beginner expert pro. But it's a really fun mashup of kind of all walks of life. And it's been really fun to, you know, spend a ton of energy in the off season putting them together and just seeing so many people get into the high alpine that wouldn't necessarily know where to go or how to start to do that. And to see them fall in love with it just like I have and spend my life in the high Alpine.
2: How have you, like, I mean, you've done, it's funny because, you know, with such a history with you watching this trajectory, your creativity is actually like pretty profound. And it, where did the, I mean, how have you fostered that? Cause it's not just one thing. You're not just like, I'm a skier and I'm a pro skier. And that's what I do. Cause I ski, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm a skier i'm a small business owner i started a race series what is the like what's driving you there is is it like add i mean that's what drives me pretty much to do (laughs) everything and nothing to completion to be honest but i mean what is it
0: that's a good question i think uh i just feel like um i don't know i growing up i think i saw my dad uh he has a phd in computer science but he's like uh he's has a couple of grammys in music and he's written a couple of books of poetry and i just think i saw my dad my whole life he had a like really busy successful music career all the while he was really busy with computer stuff too traveling the world like going doing wild things with computer and doing poetry and all that stuff i just i think that just gave me this like internal Uh, script I guess of like that's normal you know and I've never consciously been like I want to have I want to be juggling things like like I do but it just kind of all seamlessly comes together and I think growing up I was always uh, creative and I think I got a lot of that from my mom because she was always making tie-dyed shirts or making rugs or just inventing stuff all the time just creating 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 she's super creative and um, I was always creating too alongside her and uh, I think the discrete clothing gave me a huge outlet for that because obviously I was every year inventing and designing um, you know in the 10 plus years we've been in business I've designed uh, 99 percent of everything we've ever made Mm-hmm. And obviously, that takes a ton of creativity and all the uh, work into the website, naming the products, uh, and just figuring out business in itself is pretty dynamic. Uh, mm-hmm. I learned a lot from that, just from that uh, experiment. Um, and then be able to pull everything I've learned from like marketing and uh, the producer side of things from my ski career and pulling everything from the business side, from the business. And then pouring all of that into the Cirque series. Uh, and right out of the gate, I was like, all right. Uh, with Discrete, we did a lot of things right. We've done a lot of things wrong. But I learned a ton. And as far as my ski career, I've learned so much. And I'm going to just do this Cirque series right out of the gate. And um, I, I don't know. I guess it's just a it's a good question. I really don't have a good answer. I just find that I'm able to uh balance the you know the ability to steer all these ships and still feel like i'm doing a great job as a professional skier and i think uh i have the passion and the love you know i think if i didn't have the passion and the love to be in the outdoors and be in the mountains it would be hard to pull off i think i'd burn out you know
2: i mean I, yeah it's it's uh purpose there's i mean it all echoes of purpose um and i you know i'm i'm always envious of people that have seemingly endless sort of wells of purpose because i definitely float between mine you know this is what this is what's driving me right now this is what's driving me right now um so that's it's i mean some of it sort of cj brought up a piece you wrote um about hitting you know these enormous cliffs and it it verges on in some regards spiritual and you also you brought up something earlier where you you'd go up into the wolverine cirque and sit on top of that cliff that echoes to me of sort of a, a a haphazard mindfulness practice that maybe you didn't know was quite a mindfulness practice at the time so i'm curious about that i mean is this in some way as a that creativity, that drive, that purpose—is it wrapped up into some sort of spiritual ethos in you, or is am, am I creating that?
1: The piece too that that uh, Corey's referencing is the New Schoolers piece that you did. I think it was like four or five years ago, where you know you actually at some point in it you reference like your s- almost melting your consciousness, yourself, your physical self, like becoming part of the air and the snow and the rock. And that, that definitely is, we were reading that. It's like, you know, this is, this is uh this isn't just like math, like, Oh, you know,
0: the trajectory
1: yeah. and the yeah, size yeah. of, you know, you're it's, like, you're taking it into a meditative. It's math know. and mushrooms. No, I'm just <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> Accurate. <laughs>
0: well, I think, um, It's, uh, it's such an intense thing to do something that shouldn't be possible, you know, and to, to be able to pull it off routinely. And, uh, it's just, it's, uh, it's Mm -hmm. definitely like mindfulness. I mean, and it was accidental and it, but it is, it's so profound when, um, when I read like interviews with monks and stuff Mm -hmm. and they talk about how they can sit down and, you know, for two straight days, they can take their mind to this insane place of presence and like, uh, awareness. Mm -hmm. I'm like, Oh, I, I actually know exactly what they're talking about and they can access it sitting cross-legged, but I have to, you know, spend and apply every ounce of my soul into Finding like that equilibrium of mind, body, and soul in doing giant cliffs. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it starts with that fear and realizing I have the skill set and I'm gonna think through the fear. And from that moment, and sometimes it takes days of studying a cliff, and sometimes it takes a couple hours, but a lot of times, well, every time. It's uh, to, to apply myself, it's like, um, it's like a weird transformation of study, awareness, and ultimately, I become so present, I become so hyper aware of what I'm doing, that by the time I do turn that 100% fear into 100% confidence, by the time I hit 100%, I'm so present. And I'm so aware of my surroundings that I'm like not thinking anymore. I'm just so present and I can feel and think from all the energy spectrums of everything that's around me. And, you know, when you read like quantum level physics, how they talk about everything's an interconnected web mm-hmm. of activity, like actually everything is connected at electromagnetic level. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's why I can do, these big cliffs and not get hurt at all. Like I don't feel the landings and it's because I'm so present that before I even go off the cliff, I'm already part of the landing. I can already feel myself being a part of that whole spectrum, that whole fabric of energy that is me, my skis, the air, the cliff, the rocks, the trees, just it all is like this seamless, weird, hyper awareness presence, uh, that is very hard to explain and super profound, but really calming and really peaceful and a hundred percent clarity. There's not an ounce in my body that is like, I might not pull this off at mm-hmm. all. And it's really crazy because I see pictures of it afterwards and it looks crazy to me. I'm <laughs> like, Holy shit. That is so crazy. Like how did I become that guy? And yeah. it's really, really bizarre. And I never it's just weird. I think if you would have told me as a little kid, that's what I'd be up to it'd just be really hard to believe. And I don't know how I've carved myself out to have that skill set, but I have, I've cracked the code. And it's really weird to me that not more people do it. Like still, like in the ski industry, there's nobody else that's barely maybe one or two guys here or there will do a hundred foot cliff. And, and I'll do this real quick too. What drives me crazy is people that hit a 40 foot cliff and call it an 80 footer. <laughs> or someone that hits a 70 footer and calls it a hundred footer. Yeah. I've always under uh, said when I hit. Yeah. And so a true 100 foot cliff is just bonkers, you know, and it's, but it's doable, but I just can't believe there's not more people doing it. And to this day, it's just so strange that I've carved out this little pocket of being the only guy. Like,
1: well, it's the, the, the more consequences sort of a barrier for a lot of people. Right. Like the the cost benefit, I think some of the things that you're describing takes it to a, probably to a level that a lot of people, when they see that photo that you're like, that just looks like batshit crazy. (laughs) Why would somebody do that? Right? Like, what is it about that, that, what is it about these giant cliffs that is so attractive to you? I mean, you've described that a bit, but I don't think that people get that from looking at the photo. They just... the the adrenaline junkie you know it's not about adrenaline at all the way that you're describing it it's about you know a connection
0: oh totally and I think that's just it like I never go out to dominate my surroundings like I want to exist with it you know but I think that there is a stereotype there is a stigma around extreme athletes and it's been sensationalized I think by Hollywood and branding like Mountain Dew and that whole like uh, just point break uh, culture of just send it and do it for the YouTube views or whatever. And unfortunately, you know, as we all know uh, that are on the other side of that fence is that everyone that's doing these sports are so, they're so mindful. They're so most of the time intelligent and make great decisions and it's the exact opposite of the stereotype. I think there are some guys that show up that make a little, you know, blip on the, the radar that do just send it and they get away with it for a little while or they get hurt and they disappear, you know, but for guys that make a long career out of it, whether you're an alpinist or a crazy kayak or mountain biker or motocross dude or surfer, every guy that has a shelf life and a career is just usually really humble, smart and, um, I wish that side was articulated more about extreme athletes because n- 95% of conversations I get into with strangers, the first question they ask me is, do you check your landings? And I'm like, dude, are you really asking to my face? Am I just a reckless idiot? Like, yeah, literally, are you, are you really asking me that? And I get asked it all the time. I'm like, wow.
2: Do- I mean do you do you feel like there's an element of how do I say this addicted to flow? Because I think ultimately what you're describing is a level of presence that people work towards through meditation. They work towards um, through mindfulness practices and in some ways sports in general can be a, and I hate this term, but a hack into, you know, flow states or what that's sort of the buzzword that we use now to, to describe this. And what you're describing is in some ways, almost hyperflow. It's, it's, um, it's a dissolution. It's um, time, you know, what's that called? When, when time sort of
1: disappears or dilation
2: time dilation. Um, So you're, you're tapping into sort of a hyperflow. And I think there's a lot of people say, well, it's, it's, you're an adrenaline junkie. And that's sort of the mainstream buzzword for somebody who does things that are incomprehensible otherwise, is there an element of being addicted to something and could that be the sort of the, the hyper mindfulness that you achieve in it?
0: I think I enjoy it, but I'm also, I can be like a spectator of it and just appreciate it for what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, Mindfulness. Yeah. Just (laughs) the hyper sense of, otherworldly presence that i am able to access with the big cliffs Mm
2: -hmm.
0: i just find that i'm super grateful that i've been able to experience it you know a couple dozen times on -hmm. some of the more intense big cliffs i've ever done and i think just i love the mountains i love being outside i love being creative and i think that's what i'm always chasing and i feel just lucky that I've had the opportunity to do that. And I know that that is going to expire. And right now I still love it. I still have the passion. I still put myself in the situation that neat things can happen like that. But I've also started ever since day one with starting discreet clothing has been an acknowledgement that you, there's a shelf life as an athlete. So I find mentally and from like an intellectual perspective that having a business and having the races, uh, I'm at capacity, uh, with like all my being and I'm in the mountains still. And so i am just lucky that I've built this foundation for myself that I'm not at the mercy of being lost. Once I'm not passionate about putting myself in the position to have those intense, uh, states of flow state. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a great question because, um, I've tried to be really honest with myself of like, what, what's going to happen to your, like being and your soul when you're not able to chase all that, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think that's just it. I, I do feel at capacity and very fulfilled in life, um, without my ski, uh, cliffs. <laughs> you get just- the
1: same buzz Julian to, to use it. Maybe that's not the right word, but the same fulfillment from, you know, the success when you see that community gather around the Cirque series or when you have, you know, as discreet as grown from just this idea, like, do you feel that there's a parallel with those creative endeavors to, to being at the top of that cliff? Um, I mean, there's, there's definitely an intensity difference, but you know, are those, are those fulfilling that, that part to, to your capacity?
0: No, <laughs> <laughs> I, it's just a, it's a nice, rich, uh, you know, fulfilling sense of purpose to have, like the brand and the races, especially, and to feel like a lot of people come together and we're building like a great community. That's really magical. Mm-hmm. I don't think anything will compare to that profound, crazy thing I can access with the cliffs. But you're acknowledging
1: and- that, that that is like you're acknowledging the fact that that is a fleeting part of your human. Existence that yeah, like that's yeah. going to be in the past at some point, and that you're okay. I'm grateful. Just with
0: grateful that, I'm just yeah. grateful that I've cool. been yeah. able to touch that that void <laughs> at all. You yeah, know you I think p- it it's crazy.
2: You call it neat. I just want to put that in front dropping, hitting 100 foot or 200 foot cliffs is neat. I'm happy that you characterize 200 footers as neat. That makes hey, me feel hey, not want- okay. <laughs>
0: Well I thought it was pretty neat. Are you still the only guy that's done a winner eight thousand meter? I'm I'm percent? still
2: the the only American. The only yeah. American. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's that's a void that is pretty intense. I'm sure that you had many moments of
2: it was it was neat.
0: Access. <laughs> neat. Exactly. It was neat. Neat. <laughs> no.
2: I am. Um, you know it's it's I'm just in awe of of um you people like you in this community that tend towards uh making things that seem otherwise impossible possible and this is a theme that cj brought up when we were talking about what we wanted to 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 talk about with you because there is a lot you know and and in this this moment which i think is special and and many of us who are alive now will look back on it and we'll talk about it i think with um a lot of uh almost nostalgia uh, while, while being stuck at home and, and there's a tremendous amount of pain and there's death and there's suffering. I think, uh, in time when we are older, we'll look back on it with some level of nostalgia, not for the suffering that, that people yeah. are going yeah. through. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, because we have to acknowledge that we're, we're privileged, you know, not to be experiencing a lot of that right now, but I also, I'm curious, you know, how to translate, um, you know, what you do taking the impossible and making it possible into this moment. And I don't know if there's an answer to that, like, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts.
0: I think, um, I think, man, I think we're all so fortunate. There's this global infrastructure that, uh, we can travel and we kind of have the world at our fingertips. And I think, uh, that's impossible. So I think if anything, it's going to shine a light on the privilege that uh, the infrastructure of this planet has mm-hmm. in that, and also reversing that. I mean, this spring, I, I didn't, I was supposed to go to Iceland, back to Europe, uh, back to Canada, um, a couple little hut trips in the middle of the Colorado Rockies and obviously haven't done any of that. And it's weird. I've like read more books lately downloaded and bought this amazing music software program I've been putting on for like three years. And I've been trying to like learn how to make music and you learn music theory. And I've realized that, uh, man, I, I hope that it just lets people realize that you don't need to feel you know, with that absurd, absurd term and be like, how oh, you've been all so busy. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like hopefully we could all let go of that a little bit. Like it's okay to not be busy. Mm-hmm. Like we've all not been busy as much as we have been or could be for the last couple months now. And it feels good. It feels good to just know I'm not getting on a plane tomorrow. I'm going to finish that book instead. And I'm like being more conscious about those habits now of like realizing I wasn't doing enough of that. I was always just trying to build momentum towards the next project. It felt like instead of working on me, like being domestic and, you know, manifesting more of just, uh, my curious interests instead of just my professional, like endeavors and ambitions, you know? So hopefully that can, that's the impossible maybe that can become more possible is that we all look a little more inward and slow down and build our character more than just rather than being busy and being ambitious all the time.
2: The the move towards human being from human doing. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's uh, y- again. I want to. I want to reiterate that I'm not saying that we'll look back with nostalgia towards suffering, but there's a there's a connectedness and a togetherness that's come out of this that I think is, um, at least, it's encouraging. And and you know, you're a part of that because it, you do inspire people on a daily basis. I mean, there's a whole younger generation of skiers that are like that dude's the sickest fucking thing that there ever was, you know, like how do I become that? And I think it's useful to hear you say you can also not do exactly that and still be a fulfilled person
0: for sure. Yeah, I agree. That's a good way to uh kind of distill all of that CJ, what you got,
1: <laughs> man. I mean, that's, that's like, it's tough to, to transition. We're, we're sort of at time. And I think that's a, a great place to wrap it. I mean, that bow on what we're living in right now. Um, and just the, the being able to hear your journey, Julian, um, and, and how you, you know, for those who know you from a a Google search, they're gonna, they're gonna see that crazy ass photo. (laughs) Um, so to understand what's behind that, um, and your journey to get there, And, you know, I think there's, there's a lot to, to, I mean, all the sound bites out of your description of fear and presence and, you know, I think we're thinking, everyone's thinking a lot about that stuff right now. So I think there's a lot to take that from that. And, um, even in all the time, you know, that, that you and I were in the same circles in the ski industry, um, you know, we, that, that's, that's not real well publicized, you know, I mean, you wrote the, that piece, but thanks for sharing all that. And, um, I think it's, uh, I think it's really helpful right now.
0: Cool, man. Well, thanks again, guys. I appreciate being on.
1: Yeah, Thank dude. You, thanks for Take taking care, the time.
0: Later, Bye-bye, boys.
1: Thanks a lot for joining us today on Rome from home. Another episode. That was a great episode with Julian Carr. You can go to com to view this, uh, or you can get it on any of the platforms where podcasts are offered, iTunes, Spotify, Google, etc. cetera. Uh, if you like what we're doing, drop us a review. We really appreciate it. Um, and we've got a whole bunch of new guests coming down the pipeline that are going to be really exciting. Anyone uh, on the list, Corey, that's particularly exciting for you coming up? Well, I mean, we've
2: had such incredible guests uh, already, and I'm looking forward to um, speaking with Chase Jarvis, who's a creative force that um, was one of my early sort of inspirations in the outdoor photography world. Uh, I'm really looking forward forward to speaking with Aaron Huey who's been a creative force in the outdoor world as well as the National Geographic world and moving his sort of artistic genius into the realm of activism with amplifier um, and making art with Shepard Fairey and so you know I'm, I'm curious about all these people because they they all have such different perspectives uh, and I am just psyched every time we get to sit down and have one of these conversations
1: Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks everybody for tuning in and uh, stay tuned for more.